Hello and welcome to the Midlands Football Show, brought to you by Prost International. I'm Alex Wood, and yet again I'm joined by Mr. Harry Tizard. You are indeed. Miss Nikita Gomes Henschel. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And Mr. George Wilson. All right, Alex. I yeah, we're all exceptionally well. Um, as exceptionally well as Leicester City are. Leicester City won the FA Cup for the first time in their history. It was an emotional, beautiful and just crazy game. Um, so we are going to spend part one talking about it because I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great FA Cup final. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that they probably are exceptionally well. I think that the, re- the results in recent days in the Premier League maybe make them feel... A little bit cautious to admit that, but I think on the back of it, it, when they take an overview of this last week, that they will say that they feel exceptional. Um, the FA Cup final, I, I certainly enjoyed it too, but I think it was a really special one for Leicester. Obviously, the first time they've won it in their history, as we've spoken about several weeks before. A brilliant goal from Yuri Tielemans to win it. I think he's been one of their most consistent performers all season. So it was quite nice to see him provide that moment. Um, and then obviously at the end as well with the VAR controversy, which ended up on the right side for Leicester. But um, no, a really enjoyable watch and great to see them win it finally. Yeah, no, it was everything I expected and predicted except for the goal scorer. But I mean, they were great. That stunning goal from Tillemans was the cherry on top of a deserved victory. It was a nervy final few minutes, especially with that VAR decision, luckily going Leicester's way. But um, yeah, before they got to celebrate their, I mean, not before, they finally got to celebrate a win in a final since 1969. A credit to Kasper Schmeichel, who kept them in the game with those two crucial saves. But overall, a great day for Leicester, a great day for the Leicester fans who stayed back and watched them lift the cup. It was really, it was emotional. It was nice. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, Leicester, they only had one shot on target in the whole game. And like you both have said, Tiedemann's, if there's any shot on target to win the game, it would certainly be that one. Schmeichel, like you said, kept them in the game. I think it's the first captain since Seaman for Arsenal all those years back for a goalkeeper to lift the trophy. And they're the 44th different winner. And Overall, would you say they'd prefer to win that game than the one on Tuesday? Or, you know, do you think it would be the other way around? Because for me, it's always about winning trophies. And when you're Leicester, when you've not won a trophy like that, or if not, you've not won that trophy at all, but you're not a big trophy winner. For me, just lifting the trophy, being a bigger winner of a competition, it, it beats everything. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Harry. I think that the whole day out that they experienced. I know that only a small amount of Leicester fans were able to be there. I'm sure they had an incredible day, but also those watching at home, like, as you say, lifting a trophy like that, it was so nice to see because we've kind of become used to seeing the FA Cup final, the big teams winning it and the celebrations at the end maybe being a little bit subdued because winning a trophy isn't so special for them, but because for Leicester this is such a rarity, um, it was just so good to watch and yeah I, I think they would if you'd asked them at the start of the season if you'd said you will win the FA Cup and you will qualify for European football whether that's Champions League or Europa League of course they would have taken it um, mm. so yeah I, I think they've got to take the positives from this and 
obviously it's an almighty positive because they've won a trophy for the first time. Yeah, and um, it, obviously we've, a couple of us have touched on the emotionalness of it um, and how like the day was just beautiful for all of those fans and for the players and Casper um, Schmeichel and Jamie Vardy, uh, especially we'll talk about Jamie Vardy as well. The only player to win every single round of the FA Cup now that he's won it with, with Leicester there. Brilliant stuff I th- for him. I, I think I did see a tweet saying that, but then I also saw a non-league geek saying that he hadn't been in the extra preliminary round. There could always be one person. I, I, saw, one I saw that tweet where you've got that from, and then about two hours later, I saw someone picking up on that, which I thought was interesting. There's, there's always someone else who has to be right, but I just thought I'd, <laughs> I'd add that in just, just to you know confirm that in case someone was to correct it. <laughs> from the first round to the final... Jamie Vardy has been involved in every single round and won every single game. Right, go away. No, none of this preliminary <laughs> rubbish. The first official round of the FA Cup is what every non-league team strives for. When they get there and they actually get a win, boom. That is what counts. It doesn't matter about your preliminary round stuff. It's only that. Well, you no, no, it, no, it, it does. <laughs> the, the, pre, the prelim rounds matter to, to the non-league clubs. That, that they, still, they still count towards it. You've still got to remember them. The, the FA Cup doesn't start at the first round. But no, going back to the main point, um, Jamie Vardy, you know, every, everyone knows about it, how his journey that he's taken is something anyone would love to do. Um, but an, another big achievement for him, obviously. It's Leicester's first trophy win since they tragically lost their chairman in a helicopter crash. Um, it also saw a number of other people lose their lives and it was just an emotion of day for their current chairman, his son. And it was, yeah, it was beautiful to see, when, especially when he came down on the pitch and celebrated with all the players and he lifted the trophy and him and Brendan Rodgers hugged. It was yeah, it brought a tear to my eye, let alone all the Leicester fans that we know for that were even at the game or that were down in London there as well. It, yeah, brilliant, brilliant stuff for them. And I think they're just a really well-liked club. I, I, I don't know anyone that wishes ill on Leicester. My brother does. No, no I, th- I think... <laughs> he was fuming. <laughs> to the point where he said... Um... The game in the league was just not enough revenge. He just completely <laughs> wants them out of top five. Top five. He wants them like sixth now. Fair enough. Well, well, we we found someone there, Alex, who isn't a fan. But um, no, I I agree with all of what you've just said there. It was a very emotional day and a, a really enjoyable one. I think as well, it was quite emotional for for football as a whole in this country because I, I saw quite a few tweets from journalists who were there even before the game had kicked off, when kind of the hymn Abide With Me was sung, which is obviously um, so so key to the FA Cup final day and the procession beforehand and everything else. And they were saying that just being, being in a stadium with people in and that being played was just such a good moment. And it seems now with all the Premier League clubs having one game with fans that we are getting back there. And hopefully we've all watched our last behind closed doors matches for a while at least yep um, and I think that's a beautiful note to end part one on uh, in part two we'll discuss the Premier League results 
Welcome back to part two, uh, where we will discuss the Premier League. And as we left off with part one, we discussed Leicester versus Chelsea. Welcome to part two. Leicester versus Chelsea. <laughs> hey. <laughs> uh, well, I think, I think this game, Chelsea controlled most of it. It was wildly unpredictable. Uh, very intense. Um, Timo Werner had those two goals disallowed by VAR. Um, yeah, it was... What do you guys think? Timo Werner is absolutely lethal from offside positions. <laughs> That's exactly what I think. But for, no, from a Leicester point of view, um, yeah, it was a completely different game. Um, as we all expected from the cup final, um, it was a completely different game. And surprisingly, they were very lacklustre going forward. Like creating chances wasn't a big thing for them. We all have said, and we said uh, before the FA Cup preview, that Thomas Tuchel's men are solid defensively. They showed that again in the Premier League this evening, um, or that game in particular. But yeah, it looks like the Champions League football is out of their hands. Well, it, it doesn't look like it. It definitely is out of their hands. I think it's worth saying about this game that the 8,000 Chelsea fans inside Stamford Bridge did make a difference. Um, and I think just from watching a few of the Premier League games this week with home fans only, I think it, it is difficult for um, the away teams when all season long they've been used to playing in an empty ground and there being no home advantage. And now they're playing in games when there's only home fans there. Because when you hear an away team score, it's, it's a weird feeling because you're used to hearing crowd noise coming through the TV and now you just hear silence like you hear the net bulge maybe and then there's silence which is a little bit strange to get used to hopefully the away fans are back in soon enough anyway um, you mentioned there the lack of goal threat for Leicester I think when Ian Acho came off the bench he obviously scored but he also drove Leicester forward a little bit but he in a way probably came on a bit too late because by that point, Leicester were chasing the game. And as you said there, Alex, Chelsea, so solid defensively, they were comfortable in that situation to be able to see the game out. And that's ultimately what they did. Yeah, I just want to touch on what George said about the fans. Um, I think a lot of it does depend on the type of play you are. I think a lot of players thrive off of the fact that all the home fans dislike them. I was lucky enough to go to a game at the weekend with fans. And I think the difference of now between the last time that there were fans in the stadiums is that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, George, because you went to a, a game when there was fans originally, there was just like a section of away, sorry, a section of home fans and the rest of the ground was empty. Whereas now the whole ground is full of home, home fans. There's not a section without a home fan, like the away section's filled up as well. So every corner that, you know, an away player looks, they're, they're being chanted at against from the home fans, even in the away end. So there's not a, that's not even a space of, oh, I'm, I'm not getting booed from that section. So I think that did really help them. And Leicester only won two of their last 30 games at Stamford Bridge. And I think the fans, like you said, they did really change that because Chelsea were completely dominant throughout. Yeah, you're right, Harry. I think um, for these last, for these last um, two game weeks in the Premier League, when they've had fans in that they seem to have, allowed a few more in the game I went to was back in December when they were the pilot events, weren't they? And I think there were 2,000 in a 27,000 seater that I was in. So that's what they did. They put them in one stand, which in a way, as you say, doesn't have quite the impact. It still had a impact, but not as big as the one that it is having at the moment. Um, so yeah, the Liverpool result against Burnley hasn't helped, Le hasn't helped 
Leicester? Because as you say there, Alex, is now out of their hands on the final day. If they want to qualify, then they've got to beat Tottenham and hope that uh, results elsewhere go their way, don't they? And, um, well, if results don't go their way, they still have a chance in terms of like goal difference. So if they had to beat Tottenham, it would be by significant amounts of goals. I think. Mm. I think they've got... Against mm. Palace, that is. I think they've scored more goals than Liverpool as well. So I think if, it, if they have the same goal difference, I'm pretty sure if they've got the same goal difference and, of course, points, I think Leicester would qualify. But it's, it's getting very tight. But I think they do have to have a favour from Crystal Palace and from Aston Villa because those are two games that you'd expect Liverpool and Chelsea to win. Whereas, especially against Tottenham, I know they've not been brilliant recently, but they don't have a brilliant record against Tottenham either. So it is really all against Leicester at the moment. But, you know, they've upset the odds many times, so I wouldn't be surprised if they do it again. I personally think that the team Leicester needs to be targeting to jump above is Chelsea. I think that Liverpool against Palace game, but while it's Hodgson's last one, I just think that Anfield crowd will push Liverpool over the line. And I think Liverpool against Burnley last night, that wasn't a necessarily easy game um, because, you know, Burnley will make it difficult for anyone and the, the crowd were getting on top of them while it was nil-nil, but Liverpool were composed and they saw it through. They got three goals as well. So going into the final day, their goal difference is four better off than Leicester. So I don't really think that's an option Leicester will be looking at is the catching up on goal difference. Um, so I think the game that we need to be watching more closely is Villa against Chelsea because I think Villa fans back in Villa Park, I know Villa's season is over and they, they can't move from 11th place, but as we'll come on to in a bit, they were excellent against Spurs. Um, and, you know, everyone wants to please their fans. We know just how long it's been for the players without them. And we've just spoken there about the advantage that they give them. So while you would expect Chelsea to beat Villa, I don't think that is a definite Chelsea win. I think there's a good chance Villa gets something. I agree. I actually have a feeling that Villa is going to produce something in that last game. You've got, you got hope for it, though. Hmm. Because yeah. Chelsea, Chelsea have beaten or drawn against Aston Villa in seven of their last games. Villa haven't won since 2014, so it'll be a, bit, it'll be a challenge, but... Teams that you know have nothing to play for fight without pressure. So you've seen other teams win in the past playing without pressure. So I wouldn't be surprised. It's 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 going to be really tight, really really tight. Speaking of Aston Villa and all of the statistics that we've done, let's move on to their results of the over the past week. Um, uh, three two loss against Crystal Palace. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't even know how to address it. They were they were awful. Yeah, defensively, they weren't really at the races in that one. Um, and that, that's not really what we've become accustomed to this year. If, if you'd said that last year, then fine, you, you would have just been used to it. But this year, they've been a lot more solid. But I think the fact that Tyro Mings missed out, while I'm not the biggest fan of his myself, and we won't go further into that, but um, he, they, they did miss him. And um, I, I think... That was part of the reason why they did ship three goals. Going forward, they looked okay. And I think that they, they always carry that threat. Well, they have done 
most most games anyway. I, I think they've coped okay without Grealish, even though he's back now. Um, but they recovered brilliantly last night with that win at Tottenham, as, as we mentioned in that last bit, of mentioning their game against Chelsea coming up. The win at Spurs was a good one. They came from behind to win 2-1. Um, a brilliant own goal from Regalon. <laughs> and um, then Watkins with his 14th of the season. And um, potentially it should have been more as well with Watkins um, getting challenged by Hugo Lloris in the area and uh, going down with a penalty, uh, or with a penalty shout, and it was not given. Um, just a quick one, penalty or no penalty, everyone? I wouldn't have had too many complaints if it had been given, I don't think. Oh, yeah. I think because the ball was already sort of going out of play, I think that's how Hugo Lloris has got away with it, so... I probably would have given it as a penalty because he has wiped him out and Watkins may have got there, but the referee thought different. Nikita? Penalty, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a pen. It was a pen. But uh, anyway, um, good news for us and Villa fans uh, is that Jack Grealish started his first game since February. And other great news for Aston Villa fans, he picked up right where he left off. He created the most chances in this game. Just single-handedly first starting number of months, create the most chances in the game. Brilliant stuff for Jack Grealish. Um, he is a true talent and obviously will be much needed. Harry's already said all the statistics against Villa's favour in the Chelsea game to hope that other teams can qualify for the Champions League. But yeah, no, it's great to see Jack Grealish back in the last Villa show. No, great for Villa fans and great for England fans as well, I think, because I, I know he's been out for a while, but I, I still think Grealish should maybe even be in the running for a starting spot at the Euros, which is so close now. I'm very excited for it, I have to say. When that month countdown started kicking in, I've been looking at buying England shirts and everything else. Not that that's relevant to this, but I just, I'm just i very excited for it. <laughs> Worth saying on Watkins as well, um, as, as we said, they're 14 for the season. Dean Smith, after the game, said that he thinks Ollie Watkins is the best pressing centre-forward in the Premier League. Um, and to be honest, while while he's he's had his inconsistent spells this year, you know, it's it's been a really good starting season in the division for him. I think his ceiling is so high. I really do. I, I think he is a top, top class player. I think in a couple of years we will if Villa don't kick on and move on, which we all hope they do, we all hope they start challenging for European football seriously the next season and really, really kick on and become that middling Everton team that like uh, always fighting for that last Europa League spot. But if they don't, I seriously think we can see him moving on to a bigger, a, a huger club like your Manchester United, your Chelsea's um, and even your Arsenal's. I really do. I think we can see him moving on to, to a huge club. Yeah, we will move on. Um, let's start... Let's talk about West Brom. Come on, let's do it. Let's have some West Bromwich Albion talk in, in here because it was confirmed yesterday that Sam Allardyce will not be the manager of West Bromwich Albion next season. He will be stepping down at the end of the year um, when they play their final game of the season. He will be stepping down. Um, obviously, they suffered a 2-1 defeat to Liverpool at the weekend with... <laughs> I'm laughing already. I'm, I'm laughing already. A 95th minute equaliser from Alison Becker um, as he comes up for a corner. The West... winner. Winner. Sorry, a winner. Apologies. 95th minute winner from Alison Becker. And it was glorious. It was brilliant. I love goalkeeper scoring 
headers from corners, but there's no mark in paid that price, really. Yeah, don't get me wrong on this one because um, it was a brilliant moment and it was a brilliant header from Alisson, to be honest. But I have little doubt that Big Sam must have been getting his players in and absolutely <laughs> pelting them for letting a goalkeeper just come across, you know, take that header on. He, he was pretty much unchallenged. I think Kyle Bartley was the nearest defender to him. So, yeah, as as much as it was good header and it was great for Allison after everything he's been through, I think, you know, Sam must have been livid about it because he is the last manager who you expect to concede a goal like that. But I, I know that in his interview yesterday after West Ham, he, he was kind of saying he, he doesn't like having that reputation. So I won't say any more on that because I don't want to upset him myself. <laughs> There were big decisions in that Liverpool game that that could have turned it. What are your thoughts on the A, the drop ball, the Cole Bartley being in the way, was it Matt Flitz? I can't can't quite remember, being in the way to make it 2-1 or was it 2-0 at that point? I can't quite remember. There's a load of decisions that Big Sam was not happy with. Do you think he had a case for any of them or do you think he was wrong on all accounts? Because I think there was was one, the drop ball for me, I think was the incorrect decision, but I think the, the other one was okay. Yeah, you were you were right with the two players you mentioned on the the offside goal. It was Bartley who put the ball in the net, but Phillips, um, who was obstructing Allison's view or supposedly obstructing his view, um, I think I can I can see why Big Sam was aggrieved by it. I have to say because I'm not I'm not sure really if Phillips was making too much of a difference, but I suppose by the letter of the law in the position that he was, it kind of had to be disallowed. But I think you could see from the Sky commentary, I think it was Jamie Carragher who was on with Martin Tyler, Jamie Carragher, who would have had his Liverpool specs on, was saying, oh, it's 2-1 West Brom. He, he was just expecting it to be given. Ultimately, it wasn't. But yeah, Sam was rightly frustrated by that, I think. Yeah, I think it was an egregious uh, decision. It, it should have been allowed. It's awful. A horrific decision. Yes, by the letter of the law, it, it, it's disallowed. But no, it, it's complete toss. Complete toss. Right, that, that, that's a goal. That's a goal. He's, he's not interfered with play in any way. In any way. Alisson is not blocked by his, his thing at all. If it just deflected off a player and gone in, no one would have cared. But he's poked it in there. It's Liverpool's defending that's fallen asleep. And yeah, no, West West Brom got punished for it. Big Sam's correct for him to be fuming at that. Just remember, though, Alex, that what we've seen with VAR this season and last season, to be fair, is that common sense doesn't come into it. So We, we are very neutral on this podcast. VAR, <laughs> has, VAR has had its, its, it's good It's not moment. VAR, though, is it? It's the rules. It's not VAR. That's it. That's, that, that, that's it. It's the rules that, of the game. VAR just enforces them in a correct way, in a correct manner. Obviously, we, we've discussed earlier on the Leicester FA Cup win and obviously the correct decision that allowed them to win the FA Cup with VAR. It was crazy to see fans going absolute mental over a VAR decision. And now <laughs> we, we, we've seen the, seen the flip side of it where th- there was nothing. Um, no, it's great, great story. Um, the other great story, obviously, is um, Robson Kanu for West Brom. Scoring scoring goals, his rise is similar to Jamie Vardy's, and uh, it's brilliant. I, I absolutely love Robson Cano. Um, we will move on to the West Ham game um, because the interview afterwards from Sam Allardyce to Sky Sports was incredible. Um, it was incredible. Um, I don't think West Brom deserved to lose by the score that they did, um, but they. 
they did. Um, and yeah, West Ham are a good side. Um, West Brom are, but um, I will be. I will read some of the stuff that Sam Allardyce did say um, because some of it is very like telling of him as a man, um, and I think it's very good. Um, he said after the game, uh, the club needs a man who can take it into the future. Uh, he wants to obviously thank the clubs and the fans for everything they've done, but I think it the avenue he went down of being pigeonholed into this man that comes in and saves clubs and then um, he doesn't really like being that pigeonholed but it is him so it's never going to change the way it is I kind of thought that was kind of hypocritical on itself because if it's not that then you stay and you you invest in your time and future into it I don't know what other people what you guys think about that but like if you want to change your like opinion and the way that the media thinks you as then just stay no, like I, I agree. He doesn't want like this narrative of him being like um, a manager who comes in and saves clubs. And now this is the perfect opportunity for him to break away from this narrative by staying with the club that's actually going down. So it, it doesn't make sense why he doesn't take that opportunity or at least like just go with what they're saying because, I mean, that's what you are. I think it was it was interesting to see these comments, but I almost agree with Nikita in a way that he was saying that um, that he hasn't always been playing in this kind of long ball style. I think he admitted that that was the way they played against Liverpool. Um, but I'm not personally sure if there if there has been enough evidence of um, some more attractive football for people to move away from the assumption that that is what Big Sam is, the long ball thing. And as much as I respect him and respect what he's done, I, I think that's where I kind of take issue with what he said. But at the same time, I think it's understandable that he was emotional because I'm sure he would have taken great pride in his record of never being relegated. That's now been taken away. I think he thought it would maybe be an easier job than it was, but I think he quickly realised when he took the Albion job that it was a very difficult task to keep them in the, in the division. Yeah, it's um, necessarily his fault that he plays that style of football, though, because the players that he normally has to play with. Maybe that's you know his own fault for not staying with the club. Make, I, he wants to stay at Everton, and they they got rid of him when they finished eighth. So that's probably that bit isn't his fault, and you, you know we'll see. But with West Brom, with Crystal Palace. With those players, it's, it's very difficult to play an attractive style of football with players that don't necessarily have the technical quality to play on the ground, play play that sort of football. Yeah, yeah, I um, think that's a fair point, Harry. And I think um, earlier in his managerial career, when when he was at Bolton and he achieved European football there, and that you, you're almost looking that far back to find a time when he had a long period. And I think. Bolton fans would probably look back at that and they'd love Big Sam probably because of what he brought to them. So it's kind of difficult to judge, but I think that's a good argument because like you say there, with the resources that he's had at certain clubs, maybe he hasn't had the ability to play the right way or no, not play the right way because there's no right or wrong way to play, but play in maybe a style that is perceived to be more positive. Yeah, I can also see the flip side, though, because I think he he did have money at Everton and he still brought in players like Czech Tosin. I can't remember if he brought in Nias or if he was already there. At West Brom, he brought in Diania, who's that tall sort of striker. So it is, I think it is a bit 50-50 because he had players like Carl and Braun, who you don't necessarily have to play over the top. He, he's a bit smarter. He's a bit more of a technical player than Diania. So 
I can certainly see both sides of it. But then again, he doesn't stay at clubs very long, so he can't develop that philosophy that he may want to do. So, yeah, I can, I can certainly see both sides of it. And it would, do, it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with England. I'd have been very interested if he lasted more than sixty-seven days to see how he would have done in that World Cup. But you know, we'll never know. We'll never, never know. So now that obviously Big Sam has left West Bromwich Albion, who's next? Well, I think the uh, bookmakers are all pointing towards one man. And I think this is a man who has been linked with the job ever since he left Sheffield United. Um, it is, of course, Chris Wilder. He's odds on favourite for the job. And to be honest, I, I think it would be a pretty good fit because we've seen just how good of a job Wilder has done at Sheffield United getting them up from League One so quickly as well to the Premier League. Um, and I think he'd be capable of sort of performing a rebuild job, which is ultimately what West Brom probably need. We're not too sure how many of their players are going to depart in the summer. I think we've spoken previously about Pereira and Johnston maybe being the, the two standouts that we'd expect to move on, maybe back to the, pre back to the Premier League. I know last night that... The Baggies fans were singing We Want You to Stay towards Pereira. Um, but whether whether that chant will be of any use, <laughs> who knows? Um, they're certainly making their voices heard. But no, in answer to your quest in answer to your question, it looks like it's gonna be wilder, but still early days because it's less than twenty-four hours since the departure was confirmed. I think Michael Apperton's also been linked with the well, the BBC have linked him with the job, but I think the fans would probably want Chris Wilder just because of that pedigree. He has that pedigree of getting teams or team into the Premier League and succeeding at least for the first season. The second one, maybe his transfers were brilliant, but I think that that track record of getting the team from a championship back to the Premier. I think West Brom, you know, they have been in the Premier League multiple times. They are, you know, the second most renowned yo-yo club. So I think they will want to get back in the well they obviously want to get back in the league that's the way it is but uh, I think they can do it with the, facil the facilities they have if they're the second who are the first well, I'll, I'll let your minds decide that I'll let the viewers and listeners mind decide that <laughs> Jesus Christ no, no comment from me um, go, going back to the Baggy's managerial situation. There's a few interesting names below Wilder on the, the list that the bookies are putting up. Derek McInnes, who's the former Aberdeen boss. I think he did some good work there. He's currently unemployed. He is their Skybet second favourite. Um, and then third favourite, the Barnsley manager, Valerian Ismail, who has done a really good job there this year, turned them from relegation fodder last year into, well... They've finished in the playoffs. I know they lost last week. It's not over for them yet. But yeah, a playoff finish, really impressive. Um, but as we said last week, it's really important that they get the right man in quickly and ideally before, maybe before the Euros start, just so that, you know, the dealings of the summer can start to take place rather than delaying that further. But hopefully they're, they're able to do that. Well, if I was Russ Brom, I'd want it to get done during the Euros. Like, I'd, I'd announce it during the Euros because everyone in the sports media world is going to be focused on the Euros. 
and then they're very, very not going to pay a lot of attention towards who was West Bromwich Albion manager. So if they wanted to sneak a, a cheeky one like your Michael Appertons, like the Aberdeen boss whose name has completely escaped me because I'd never even heard of him in my life, um, <laughs> I, that would be the time to do it. If you're going to announce a big one like Chris Wilder or anything like that, you do it before or after the Euros. But if you want to yeah, sneak but- somebody in the back door that the fans might not like or that the media is probably going to be like, what? And scratch your head about, then you do it during the Euros. I like your um, I like your PR brain at work here, Alex, that thinking about when to announce it. But, but I think we, we can hope for West Brom fans that it is a man that they're happy with. So in which case that will hopefully, they'll time it so that everyone can hear about it and they can post interviews and everything else. But yeah, hopefully they get the right man in. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the right man in, um, let's move to Wolves, where Nuno Espirito Santo is really, really struggling this season. And you, you can just tell, like his final press conference after the loss at Everton was really cagey and it was it was just, yeah, he, he wasn't really happy at all. Back-to-back defeats for Wolverhampton Wanderers this weekend. Um, a 2-0 loss at Spurs. Should have been 5 or 6. Um, they were poor. They were so bad with Wolves. Um, Connor Cody was the one outstanding player, as always, the captain of the side. Uh, heart of that defensive unit. Probably might get a call-up from England as well. Um, and the Everton game, they were better going forward, but they were still defensively poor. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's become a little bit common that Wolves seem fairly... that They seem to carry a threat on the break and on the counter-attack, but I think quite a few fans have grown a bit frustrated this year. They only seem to start to show a bit of attacking intent and a will to have the ball and play it forward um, you know, and, and control games when they go behind, which... You know, you can understand, you can completely understand that. Um, a, a stat which doesn't make for great reading is that Wolves have failed to score in the first half of 29 Premier League matches this season. So that just illustrates that point, that they seem really happy to sit back. Um, ultimately, they'll be disappointed with how this season has gone. Um, injuries haven't helped them, obviously, but as we've kind of said in previous weeks, it's going to be a big summer for them, whether you know Nuno sticks around and, and is backed with some more cash to then try and boost the squad. But I'm not sure how that's going to go, really. Yeah, I think we still always seem to have the same conversations. That's the problem that they've got. They've had injuries. I know they've lost their best two players through injury, Neto and Imanes, and I don't think any team would, you know, they obviously wouldn't perform well when they've had two long-term injuries. But when you don't have that squad depth, it, it really, it really doesn't help. But like you said, they always seem to be relatively negative especially in the first half and probably go for it in the second half to try and catch the tired team out and you you see that a lot of the time it did work in the first couple of seasons when you're against an Everton team that have won six times at home this season for them's not brilliant now they can only finish 12th and I know that's going to be disappointing for them but you know at least they avoided a relegation battle completely and hopefully from their point of view they can rebuild and they can see they can do sort of a a check of the team, you know, who, who can come in, who can, who's going to leave, will William Jose stay, will Neto stay because he's got an injury, will Jimenez stay because of his injury, uh, or will they lose them? And then, you know, this, it'll be a big, big summer for them. Worth mentioning as well, um, ahead of Sunday's game against Man United, that there was an announcement yesterday about Raul Jimenez, um, just mentioning how he's made some good progress, but that 
he, he won't be featuring on Sunday. I don't that's come as a surprise to anyone, but they're still hopeful that he will play a full part in next season, which is really good to hear. And I think a full summer to kind of rest up and prepare for next year is the best thing for him. And hopefully he can return to the same shape um, that he was in before the injury. Um, Man United on Sunday as well with fans back inside Molyneux. And I think some of the bigger teams have found that difficult, even though it won't be a full Molyneux. I think they should still make a difference, as we mentioned for so many games earlier on in the show. And Man United will also have eyes on that Europa League final next Wednesday. So I think maybe there's a chance Wolves could sign off with a win and hopefully they will. Yep. Um, I, I think it was um, Nuno Espirito Santo that said um, Jimenez still has a few boxes to tick um, in terms of getting back to full fitness. Wolves definitely have left a lot of boxes unchecked this season with their performances. And we still have some stuff to tick off in part three, which is what you'll see as I do on the other side of this. Welcome back to part three, where we discuss all the rest of the EFL. Now, even though the EFL is done, there are still major things happening in the... Um, I'm going to redo that because there was a Facebook ping there. Awful. <laughs> who, does, who pings me on Facebook when this is happening? You know, can you not see I'm podcasting? What's going on here? Um, <laughs> right. Welcome back to part three of the Midlands Football Show. We will discuss the EFL. Even though it's finished, there's still some major happenings. Teams signing new deals with players. Managers coming. It's really, really good. And we shall start where we finished off the EFL last week with Derby County. Now, Derby are going through takeover talks with number of parties, even though the Eric Alonso deal is now officially dead. So, yeah, um, their chief executive released a statement saying that they're still in talks with several buyers. Um, hopefully, we see Derby County with um, some new owners and influx of cash because, um, yeah, it would be nice to see them do well again. Yeah, it's a little bit of a nervy time for the club's fans at the moment, I think, e even after getting through that final day and somehow surviving. Well, maybe somehow's harsh because they did put a shift in on that day. I think e even now it's a little bit nervy just to see which direction they go in. As you say, they're, they're weighing up a few options. I think we mentioned last week, I think we were all kind of in agreement that the Eric Alonso thing, it's probably a good thing that it didn't manage to go through. Hopefully they find the right person and are able to move forward. Obviously the, the points deduction thing still kind of hangs in the balance as well, but I'm not sure how long it'll be until we find out the verdict on that. I think if I was a Derby fan, I'd be relatively, I wouldn't say confident, but I'd be content with the goings-on because it's Mel Morris, because he's a Derby fan himself. I think he wants what's best for the club rather than just go, I'm going to sell it to the highest bidder. Whoever gives me £10 million more than the next guy, I'm going to sell it to. I do genuinely think he'll go, yes, you're giving me the money, but what do you want to do with the club? What, what are you going to do here? Are you going to invest in finance, uh, facilities, youth? What's going to happen when I when I give you the reins? So if I was a Derby fan, I'd be you know, relatively confident that if there's multiple buyers involved, the club will go to the right people. Yeah, um, we'll quickly touch on Birmingham City. 
Uh, they re-signed Riley McCree, um, who obviously featured for them quite a lot last year. Uh, he's back on loan for them all of next year. Um, and that's all I've got for the championship. Anyone else want to inject some pace into this championship segment? No, just on uh, on Birmingham, obviously the release list is something you receive from every club. I'm not sure there was anything too major to take from there. As you say, the new contract offered, but I think Lee Bowyer will be excited for the for the summer to come. Hopefully he, he gets some backing and is that, and they're not kind of lingering there at the bottom of the division next year because, you know, on the face of it, Birmingham are a pretty big club for that level and hopefully they, they can maybe try and push further up it next year under Bowyer's tenureship. We'll see. Yep, and we'll move on to League One and Burton Albion. Um, Burton Albion announced that they were giving Michael Mancien, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, a new one-year deal for them. Um, uh, obviously, he's a big part of their, their system there at Burton and a good player for them. So, good for them. Yeah, I think when it, when he signed last year as well, it, it was seen as a little bit of a coup because I think Mancien is someone who quite a few people would recognise given his passed with Chelsea um, but no good to see that he's extended his stay I, I think he, he maybe his time was maybe disrupted a little bit by injuries correct me if I'm wrong but I think hopefully next year he'll get a little bit of a run in the team again and help them move on to bigger and better things maybe maybe another promotion push under Jimmy Floyd Asselbank who knows and last but not least we'll move on to Walsall who as last week we said, their head coach had departed from them. They have announced a new head coach. It's Matthew Taylor, um, a coach from Tottenham Hotspur. He's never had a managerial job before. Could be fun. Never had a job before, but he, he's still a player. No, he's still someone who people will recognise from his playing days because he, he spent quite a while at Palm, Portsmouth, Bolton and West Ham United. So I think... Um, he, he's someone I definitely recognise, um, having grown up watching the Premier League. He, he was kind of in that era. Um, he hasn't coached before, but no, he, he hasn't managed before. But having been a coach at Spurs, he's hopefully had um, a good kind of upbringing in that role. And I think with the system that they're building at Walsall, it's a good idea to kind of bring in a young and up-and-coming manager. He's got something to prove, but I think Walsall will hopefully give him a good platform to do that. And we'll see how it goes. The best thing about this is that they've done it so early. So they knew that Brian Dutton, probably a few weeks ago, they knew that he was going to be moved on. So they got in contact with Matt Taylor. And now he's got so much time to weigh up his options and prepare the squad. Yeah. Um, the original player that you would say only scores good goals is Matthew Taylor. <laughs> the original guy. I can't on argue that. with that. You can. The, the current one is Harry Wilson. The, the, the accumulation of Harry Tazad and George Wilson. Harry Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> he only scores good goals, does Harry Wilson. Um, and on the Harry Wilson-George Wilson combination, we will leave it there. Um, we will be back next week with the roundup of the Premier League final day. Uh, see who makes Europe, who doesn't, um, and what Aston Villa decide to do. Um, but yeah, from me, I will say goodbye to Mr. Harry Tizard. Goodbye. Miss Nikita Gomes-Henschel. Goodbye. 
and Mr. George Wilson. Thanks a lot, Alex. See you in a bit.